God is the author of life. He's the creator of every being. We were knit together in our inward parts. God knit us together in our mother's wombs. We should praise God because we've been remarkably and wondrously made. God's works are wondrous and we all know this full well. Our bones were not hidden from God when we were made in secret. We were formed in the depths of the earth. God's eyes saw us when we were formless and all of our days were written in God's book and plan before a single one of them began. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday and we align with churches across nations in observing the sanctity of human life together biblically. We've arrived at the book of Deuteronomy, and next week we will look at the larger context for the book of Deuteronomy, but today we will begin in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. Do you think that God could change the heart of somebody who carries out and helps carries out abortions? Do you think that God could do that? think that God could cause the abortion rate in Seattle, the supply of abortion to plummet because of a revival that breaks out among those in the medical profession who perform abortions? I think that God could transform the hearts of abortionists in such a way that leads to the saving of lives? I believe that he can, and I know that he has. My currently pro-choice friend, you could be sitting in the same seat that Amy sat in last year right now. This is Amy's story, this took place here, look at this. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson and I am a mom and a medical assistant and a wife um, my husband and I have been married for 16 years, and my kids are 19 and 11. I recently um, took a position at a medical clinic uh, in Bellevue. I initially took the position um, because I wanted to work with pregnant women and in women's health, and I, I wanted to make a difference and follow people along with their journeys. The interview process went well. And I asked all the questions and I, I thought it was a good fit. And it wasn't until I was working on my own that I was informed what all my job description entailed. Initially, see these women come in and find out they're pregnant, and then to get counseled on their options. They would come back another day after they had taken a pill to kind of start the process, and then they would come in so our providers could perform these procedures on them. And the entire time, we're sitting in there, watching these patients in pain. Their significant others are standing there holding their hand and they're crying. We're told to not show any emotion. 
you know? I've got kids of my own. I, there's no way that I can't show emotion. And then after all of it's over, the doctor's not the person who's got to put the specimen in the jar. I do. The doctor's not the one who has to sit there and clean up all of the mess. I do. And I don't, I don't know how the providers can sleep at night, but I know that it wasn't fitting well with me. And a lot of people, especially in our area, they don't have any clue that our clinic is even doing this. I mean, there's, there's girls like my kid's age coming in there and doing these and their parents don't even know. You know, there's, there's a patient who was, she had this procedure done. She was 17, her parents didn't know. She was walking out of the clinic and she was soaked in blood. I gave her my sweatshirt to wrap around her waist so she didn't embarrass herself. I struggled with this. I, I thought about how those moms feel afterwards, the guilt that they probably felt that they're gonna feel the rest of their lives. I tried to block it out, I guess, and to not think about it because I knew how important it was that I stay there. I was stuck in a way to where when you first start a position, you're in a probationary period. So then you can't leave. You can't leave the department, you can't transfer. Um, I needed the medical benefits for myself and my entire family. You know, uh, it was good pay. I couldn't just stop working there. We needed, you know, the money to pay bills. When we were at church last January and we were listening to Pastor Jesse um, talk about the sanctity of life, it just hit home. It was like, at that time, I knew that I needed to change. I just didn't know how I would do it. About a week later or so, I received a letter in the mail, and it was from my human resources department. It was surreal. It was like, this is God right here working in my life, because I was placed in a position where I now assist providers, radiologists, um, during procedures of women who have breast cancer. Some don't have very long to live, some have the early stages. Life is so disposable to some people, and it's so cherished by others. I was adopted when I was six months old. I did not have the best biological mother, but God placed my adoptive parents in my life at six months of age. God is the only reason why I'm in the department I am now. And he placed me where he knew that I would be most useful. But he also is using my voice to speak up. You know, to all the, the medical professionals, you don't have to stay silent. You can speak up and you, you do have a voice. You know, if each of us speak up for ourselves, then we can be one powerful voice and we can change things. God is able. Praise God. If you're in the medical profession and you have a conscientious objection to 
abortion and euthanasia and part of your job includes this, you can repent of that today. You can repent of that. You can repent of that. Believe that abortion, euthanasia, mass shootings, I believe that these are symptoms of sin in our culture. I think that we as a society collectively have just forgotten what children actually are. I mean, that sounds obtuse, but, but try it on for size just for a second. Like, we don't realize actually what children are. We have utterly abandoned God's word. We have abdicated God's model for the family. And now, when I walk into Walgreens with four kids, people look at me like I'm a Martian. Like, what? You married a woman and the two of you have had kids together? It's bizarre. I'm so confused by what I see. And people will make wisecracks. If you have a lot of kids, prepare to get made fun of in our culture, even in Christian culture. Yes, we know what causes this. <laughs> and so do you, my pro-choice friend, and that's my point. When you go to Ikea and you buy Schnorksvick Lugan <laughs> and you look at the picture of a table and then you follow the instructions and you do what the androgynous little figure says to do in half Swedish and you eat your meatballs and you build the table. Like you just might have a table. Like if you follow the instructions exactly for how to produce a table, you might produce a table. If you follow the instructions exactly for how to make a baby, you just might have a baby. We all know where babies come from. We've forgotten what children fundamentally are. They are a blessing from the Lord. It is a good thing to have children. They're made in the image of God. There are blessings from the Lord. So as a part of a cultural shift at Highlands Community Church, when you see a woman with five kids walking to the minivan, I want you to praise God six times at what you see. You understand? Praise God for her life and every little life following after her. And then maybe offer to give her a hand too. <laughs> Praise God, children are a blessing from the Lord. Here's just, just our day yesterday, just my family's day yesterday, just for example. We came here, the FLC for Upward, Asher the Basher was playing basketball. I had Austin on one knee, I had Asa on the other knee. My bride was trying to hold Autumn Grace, but she was mostly walking up and down the sideline. The dunks came and sat next to us, so we had a lot of kids right there on the sideline. And we opened up in prayer, and as I held my little ones on my lap, I could feel that Ace's hands were folded in prayer. We came home, walked across the street to the market. The kids picked out what they wanted to grill. We had lunch, and as we prayed, Autumn Grace prayed over the food, and her blessing over the food was this, God, thank you for Luna. That's our dog. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and then Asa was I want to pray too. And so Asa prayed. He was sick the week before and he's better now. And he said, God, thank you for answering my dad's prayer and making me better. We went to the living room. We watched a movie. I laid on the floor in front of the fireplace and I fell asleep. And when I woke up, I had four kids in a Yorkie on top of me. <laughs> Children are a blessing from the Lord. As we've abandoned God's model for the family, we've forgotten what sex actually is. We've forgotten what children actually are. This is a symptom of our abdication of God's design. It is a symptom of sin in our culture, and it is an act of deception brought upon us by the enemy. 
A church our size, I know that there are people here consider yourselves pro-choice. I'm gonna take the long shot here and try to convince you biblically that you are actually very, very passionately pro-life. But you wave the pro-choice flag because it's a way of virtue signaling. You say like, I'm standing up for women's rights. I stand up for a woman's right to choose. You do this because you think it makes you look more virtuous. But in your heart of hearts, you are actually passionately, adamantly, militantly even, pro-life. Should we look together at Deuteronomy chapter five? Deuteronomy chapter five, beginning in verse one. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Remember, in the, the first generation of the Israelites passed away in the Exodus, and now the second generation of Israelites, along with Caleb and Joshua, is about to inherit the promised land. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. Let's pause right here because the original Hebrew text has something to tell us. In the year 1551, we took the New Testament text, the New Testament Greek, and we added in the verse numbers and the chapter numbers, not altering the content in any way, but just providing a reference system whereby to efficiently navigate this massive text. Now, in the year 600, beginning in the year 600 and completing in the year 1000, the Masoretic text was developed. The Masoretic text took the original Hebrew of the original manuscripts, which had neither spaces nor punctuation, and added these in without altering the content. And as a result of the Masoretic text, we were able to more easily navigate the Hebrew. This was collected in the oldest known collection of the Masoretic texts is enumerated in what's called the Westminster Leningrad Codex. The Westminster Leningrad Codex renders Deuteronomy chapter five, verses four and five this way. Here's the original Hebrew of Deuteronomy chapter five, verses four and five. Now remember, you read Hebrew from right to left. So verse four begins on the top line. And then if you look to just the left of the third word of the second line, do you see what looks like the English colon, the two dots? This is what's called in the Westminster Leningrad Codex a soft pasuk, and it's the equivalent to a period, which means that if the Westminster Leningrad Codex notation is accurate, verse four is actually a single sentence, more accurately, accurately rendered in the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Here's what it looks like there. The Lord spoke to you face to face from the fire on the mountain, period. This places in perspective what follows in Deuteronomy chapter five. This is a reiteration of the Ten Commandments. God spoke from the fire on the mountain. He means what he says. Continue on in the text in verse five. While I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. There's the first of the Ten Commandments. When you read the Ten Commandments, you run the risk of legalism. If you were to obey commandments two through 10 from this day until the day that you die with a 
perfect track record and you don't have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you would still die and go to hell. Perfect track record obeying commandments two through 10 will do nothing to save your soul. Do you see what the first commandment is? To have no other gods beside the Lord, to love the Lord your God all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Jesus says this is the greatest commandment of all. So if you don't have Jesus as Lord and Savior, adherence to all the other commandments will do you no good at all. But there's more. Our curriculum looks at chapter five, verse 17, and then continues on to chapter 19, verses four through 13. So in your small group, whether you're in student ministry or adult ministry, that's what you'll study. Now, I want us to look at verse 17 and put it in perspective. Look at verse 17. It's so simple and so clear. What did God say from fire on the mountain? He said this, do not murder. We can say with absolute biblical authority that God is opposed to murder. Why? Because he gave this command to his chosen people of Israel. The law of God tells us about the heart of God. It also provides the standard whereby we can find ourselves wanting and in need of a savior. So lest you see this command, do not murder, and think to yourself like, wow, pastor, I got off easy today. This is pretty good. I'm pretty proud of my non-murder rate. <laughs> Listen to what Jesus says. It's not enough just to not murder. We'll look at this in greater detail next week. But for now, I just want to take this commandment and then I want to show you what Jesus says about this commandment in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus has just taken the commandment and shown us that it's not enough just to not murder. But if you have hatred for your brother in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. He's gonna show us that every one of us needs the Savior. You could adhere to the Ten Commandments perfectly and still need a Savior. But back to this commandment not to murder and what it reveals about the heart of God and how we how we may apply its converse today. My, my pro-choice friend, my currently pro-choice friend, can you imagine, envision, the utter rage that would well up from your belly if you, in walking to your car in the parking lot after this, scrolling through social media, looking at your phone, came upon a video that I posted of me killing a kitten. You would have an absolute rage fit. There's even a documentary on Netflix about this. That if you saw a video of somebody killing a kitten, every one of us would suddenly act very pro-life. You would say what? List in your mind all the objections you would have to the video of me murdering a kitten. What would you say? The kitten has done nothing wrong. You'd be absolutely right. The kitten can't defend itself, and you're right, it's true. The kitten just wants to love you. You're absolutely right. This is morally wrong of you to do this to the kitten. And if I were to rebut 
yeah, but the kitten scratched me. I'm allergic to the kitten, and the kitten has affected my body negatively. I have consequence. I have scars on my body by the kitten's presence. It's my kitten. It's my choice. If the kitten has afflicted my body in some way, does that still rationalize my choice to murder the kitten, to kill the kitten? You would say, obviously not. List for me all the reasons in your mind why you would be infuriated at the sight of me killing a kitten. They're all even more true of a human baby. In your heart of hearts, you are actually very pro-life. And this comes out when you stand up for the rights of animals. Consider now the utter irony of being vegan for ethical reasons, but also being pro-choice. You know, you know that you do this because of your passion for life. You are militantly pro-life. You are adamantly, vehemently pro-life. And when somebody posts a video of an animal being killed, your pro-life nature comes up. Don't you see that everything you would say in defense of the kitten is more true of the baby? The baby cannot defend herself. The baby has done nothing wrong. That baby boy just wants to love you. All of these things are true, and you know them in your heart. You're not actually pro-choice. This is a symptom of sin. May the scales fall from your eyes. Would you give your life to Jesus today? And then see this atrocity for what it is. I've been able to convince just a few people that abortion is wrong. I've been on, I've been on the spot in a debate before with somebody who is pro-choice, and I have been able to, in a handful of scenarios, convince somebody who is pro-choice to become pro-life. But even after having done that, I found myself whole, I find myself wholly dissatisfied because you could suddenly become pro-life and still not be saved. Rather, what I have seen God do is this. As I share the gospel with people, as I see my friends give their lives to Christ, then the pro-murder scales would fall from their eyes. There was a woman who participated in pro-choice demonstrations. She gave her life to Christ at our church. We never mentioned abortion once. After giving her life to Christ, she came months later to my office with tears in her eyes because she came to the realization. She's like, I cannot believe that there are photos and videos of me championing abortion. I cannot believe. I thought what I was doing was right. I thought what I was doing was was just, I thought that what I was doing was a good thing. I thought I was standing up for, for women and for women's bodies. And it's not until after they give their lives to Christ that they become pro-life. So your pro-choice stance is a symptom of sin. You can have a genius level IQ, but still be deceived by evil. Would you consider some of the futility of your own arguments, my currently pro-choice friend? You know this. The majority of these arguments are framed as though a woman were impregnated by the very pro-life cause itself. Not only that, but they often ignore the utter and innate innocence of the baby, even babies conceived by rape. You think that Christians just want to control women's bodies? Do you realize, like, that sounds exhausting to me. <laughs> Like, I have zero desire whatsoever at all to control what women do with their bodies. That sounds gross to me, even. Like, I, I have enough time trying to maintain some privacy with my family. I don't have time to control what women do with their bodies. What a fatuous red herring would you face the truth of this? These arguments are futile, my pro-choice friend. Your ad hominem attacks on me don't address the issue. My pro-choice friend, you're actually very pro-life. Your compassion for life comes out when you advocate for the lives of animals. 
And Pierce Morgan's question, what would drive a woman to have an abortion, is tantamount to what would justify murder. You know this in your heart of hearts. And the next time you watch the Netflix documentary in which people speak with an eruption of horror at kittens being murdered and then speak with an obvious and almost cold composure at a human being receiving the exact same treatment that an aborted baby receives, I want you to take note of the obvious deception that evil has worked in our culture. Human lives are worth more than the animals whose value you champion, and you know this. This is also biblical. Genesis 9, after the flood, God writes this, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. But just see, what about instances in which the mother's life is at peril? I'm not a medical expert, but I believe that these cases are often overinflated. For one thing, it also assumes a pro-life stance. But moreover, I believe that it's often overinflated. Here's the story of my own family. In delivering the twins, my own bride's life was at risk. I think that women who choose to risk their lives, to have their babies, are heroines and I admire them, and they are not championed by the feminists, and so I will celebrate them here. I think it is godly and beautiful of you to risk your life for the cause of your own child, and I have seen this church nursery filled with miracle babies who ought not to have lived. My family and I took that risk. My heart goes out to you if you face a similar situation, but our God is a God of miracles, and our family is here for you no matter what. My heart also goes out to families who have a hard time with this. Did you know my pro-choice friend, the young woman in the audience right now considering having an abortion, you might be sitting next to parents who have been struggling with fertility, who have been facing serial miscarriages, and would love nothing more than to adopt your baby. You are surrounded by people of God who love the Lord and are here for you and can meet every last one of your needs. Where you sit, you are surrounded by love on all sides. Please, if you're considering having an abortion, please do not. You carry within you the image of God. You carry within you someone who has his or her own genotype, their own blood type, their own person. This is the smallest member of Highlands Community Church. You are one of the most beloved members of Highlands Community Church, and there is love on every side of you. Do I speak the truth, members of Highlands Community Church? If you're thinking about having an abortion, please do not. You are surrounded by a family who is here to meet your needs. My heart goes out to you. If you've been compelled by a man to have an abortion, that man is in sin. He wants to have sex without the supposed consequences. He's not a man at all. And he needs to come to repentance. If that's you, bro-choicer, you need to stand before God. Stop being a coward. You need to confess your sin and be saved today. You need to own up to what God has called us to. Your son's blood is on your hands. Your daughter's blood will be on your hands. Tremble before God who said, do not murder. Answer to and confess that sin. 
First John 1, 9 is beautifully clear. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is grace for you. If abortion is a part of your past and you are a Christian, did you know that you are absolutely forgiven? Did you know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the cross is sufficient to atone for every last sin, all of my sins, all of your sins? If you give your life to Christ, you are forgiven, you are forgiven, you are absolutely forgiven. Isn't grace amazing? Be saved today. If this text, do not murder, convicts you, would you give your life to Jesus? I can see the fingerprints of the creator on you, my pro-choice friend. I can see God at work. I know that you don't always confess to believe in him, but I can see him at work in you. I see it in my atheist friends. When they abdicate and abandon the standard of the word of God for that which is right and that which is wrong, something else has to take its place. When you abandon the word of God, you create a vacuum in your worldview. And you have to stand upon something because you know that morality still exists. Here's what I've seen a lot of my atheist friends take up, environmentalism. Environmental, ironically, they end up taking up the very first commissioning God ever gave to man. They often have to borrow from the Bible in order to condemn the Bible. You know who the first people ever commissioned to care for the environment was? It was Adam and Eve, it was mankind, it was us. They're borrowing from scripture. I appreciate a lot of what environmentalism does. As a surfer, I would like to not be surfing in pure plastic one day. Thank you, Taco Time, for making everything compostable, amen? That's a local company right here in Renton. I think that's cool. But when environmentalism becomes your new worldview basis, if you, as an atheist, think it gives you a sense of purpose, you think it adds meaning to your life, that sounds kind of nice, right? I'm saving the planet. And you can cloak yourself in virtue. Be careful here. Because I've also heard the environmentalist ethic taken on almost like a religious worldview used to turn the created order upside down. And instead of mankind being the commissioned stewards with dominion over creation, suddenly mankind becomes a plague upon the earth and locusts who consume and ravage and destroy everything. And then you end up creating a murder rationale presented without irony. You end up rationalizing and justifying genocide. If mankind is a plague, then it's good to slaughter mankind. If mankind is a plague upon the earth, a blight upon creation, then it is ethical to abort and slaughter mankind. When you devalue human life in the name of environmentalism, you're calling evil good, and you're calling good evil. So by all means, please take out your recycling. I do the same thing. But if you begin to devalue humanity, in the name of environmentalism, listen to what Isaiah the prophet writes. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 in the CSB. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. Listen, I've driven across the state of Kansas. There's plenty of room for everybody, okay? We don't, we don't need to cull the population. I keep using this word murder. Jesse, you, you keep saying murder. Like, is euthanasia murder? Is, is abortion murder? The only way these things are not murder is if humans aren't humans. Right? And you know this, my currently pro-choice friend. You, you know 
this. The opposition to the use of the word murder is the classic yet futile game of semantics that not only is used by the enemy in pro-choice argumentation, but is often the same brand of semantics used to rationalize other various evils. The devil often fights his battles in the dictionary because if he can change the colloquial connotation of a given word, he can remove its stigma and then we can suddenly find ourselves approving of atrocities. The devil wages his battles in the dictionary. So yes, I will say what you already believe Abortion is murder. Euthanasia is murder. And I'll, I'll even use the most basic of all propositional logic teachings to prove it to you. Okay, within propositional logic, the equivalent to two plus two equals four is called the modus ponens. Here's the modus ponens. If P, then Q. We grant P, therefore Q. If the deliberate ending of an innocent human's life is murder, Every abortion ends the life of an innocent human, therefore it's murder. You know this. Abortion is murder as per the, as per the most fundamentally basic of all of propositional logic. My pro-choice friend, may the scales fall from your eyes. Now, because abortion is murder and because babies are fully-fledged humans, I'll step down from the platform for this moment because I'm, I'm speaking from a personal conviction and not straight from the biblical text here. I cannot join in a pro-life demonstration that would brandish large images of mutilated babies' bodies on them. I cannot conscientiously participate in that form of pro-life protest. And it's precisely because of my respect for the bodily rights of the baby it's a common practice of pro-life demonstrators to show aborted babies on posters and to brandish them at abortion clinics. And I hope that God uses that to save lives. I really do, but I can't participate in that precisely because the baby on that poster is a human being, precisely because of the bodily rights of that baby. And maybe it's because I've lost a child, but I would, never, I would never want somebody brandishing an image of my son Aiden's dead body on a poster. I wouldn't ever brandish a poster with an adult's murdered body on it. And for that same reason, I cannot bring myself to participate in this particular form of pro-life demonstration. I will, with proper caution and qualification, recommend the movie Unplanned. I do not endorse every single thing that Abby Thomas, whose story inspired the movie, has ever said, but there's something in this movie that I think is beautiful the no-show rate at abortion clinics goes up 75% when people are praying at the entrance. So, if God calls you to demonstrate on behalf of the unborn, as per my personal convictions, wherever you stand, we can disagree on this, I would pray, I would pray, I would pray. This disregard for human life has been evidenced in not just abortion, but also in mass shootings. I've taken a softer stance on this in the past, but I see now, even just a year's time, further evidence of a clear pattern between what Satan did through Judas and what every mass shooter does. Here's my take. In Matthew 26, 20, 20 through 40, Judas, inhabited by Satan, ate with Jesus. The West Freeway Church of Christ shooter was fed by his church. Judas, inhabited by Satan, deceived the people with a futile disguise. Matthew 25, 26, surely not I, rabbi, said Judas. Likewise, 
the West Freeway Church of Christ shooter wore a futile disguise. Matthew 26, 26 through 30, Judas, inhabited by Satan, took the very first communion with Jesus. The West Freeway Church of Christ shooter took communion with his church. Judas, inhabited by Satan, betrayed Jesus to be killed. In Matthew 26, verses 47 through 49, moreover, in a modus operandi consistent with other mass shooters, Judas then killed himself in Matthew 27, three through 10, and very frequently mass shooters will then commit suicide after the fact. I think that when you see a mass shooter, you're seeing the spirit of Satan himself at work. I think this is symptomatic of our culture's utter abdication of the sanctity of human life. My pro-choice friend, this is not what you actually believe. You were created in the image of God. Your life has value. So does the life of every human baby. And you know this. Would you repent and give your life to Christ today and be saved? I believe that abortion is a symptom of the satanic sabotage in our culture. I believe it's a result of sin. I believe that mass shootings are likewise works of evil within our culture. And I believe the same of euthanasia. Jesse, it's easy for you to talk about this with abortion and with euthanasia and abortion and mass shootings and things like that because those things haven't affected you personally. Moreover, what is it like for somebody who's just old and wishes to die with dignity? And when we use that word dignity, we're speaking strictly in physiological terms, strictly in medical terms, never in spiritual terms. I have two biblical examples for you and they come from Luke chapter two. Luke chapter two, verse 25 in the CSB, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. According to verses 25 and 29, Simeon was on the verge of natural death and therefore likely very well along in years. However, the text does not actually say his age. It's possible that he was younger and yet afflicted with a fatal disease. It was not until this moment that he fulfilled everything that God spoke over him, and he speaks an important prophecy in verses 34 and 35. Moreover, he speaks a blessing over Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus in verse 34. And then the very next verse, Luke 2, 36 There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. At After 84 years as a widow, the prophetess Anna, widowed only seven years into her marriage, spent decades fasting and praying. Here comes the pinnacle of her prophetic ministry at this old age. She is one of the first evangelists of the New Testament. The prophetess Anna meets Jesus and then prophesies and tells everybody about what's just happened. Isn't that evangelism? Meeting Jesus and then telling everybody about him? Here's one of the very first evangelists of the New Testament era. And it wasn't until she spent 84 years as a widow fasting and praying in the temple. God's not done with you yet. If you 
believe that you have to hit the age of 65 and then cruise and then you're done, please tell me what it's like when you get to heaven and explain that to Abraham. In our culture, like you hit 65 and then done. Nothing else, just cruise. Abraham's ministry didn't really begin until he was in his 90s. The idea that you would hit the age of 65 and then just like not really do anything is an exclusively wealthy American idea. It is utterly foreign to the original intent and context of the Bible. God's not done with you. I know that because you're here. Do not end your life prematurely. Though you suffer, though you are afflicted, do not, do not, do not abandon God's calling on your life. I know that there are fatherless men at this church who need godly older mentors. I know that there are godly women in this church who could really use a mom, I know that God is not done with you. If you are older, if you are afflicted, you wish to end your life, would your prayer be like that of Simeon, who after you've done everything that God's called you to do, you could say, now, master, you can take your servant home in peace, but not until you've done everything that God has called you to do. I believe that euthanasia is another one of these symptoms. I want to speak and announce something to the couples in our church who struggle with fertility and miscarriage. The Aidens Hope Conference is coming back this year. And this time it is opening up entire new tracks, including one for you. If you struggle with fertility, if you and your spouse experience miscarriage, your church is here to care for you and loves you. Married couples, married couples of Highlands Community Church, what is the opposite of Deuteronomy 5.17? Do not murder like to willingly end an innocent human life. What is the converse of that? What is the inverse? How might we apply this? It's beyond just not murdering. Jesus taught us that. I believe that we answer God's call. I believe that the antidote, the antithesis, is the creation of new life. And so, married couples, did you hear me say married? <laughs> married couples of Highlands. If you've, if you've been putting off having children, Okay, if you've been waiting until you're financially ready. <laughs> you're never going to be ready, okay? You're never going to feel ready. If you've been putting it off for some weird reason, okay? Make that vacation for two, a vacation for three. Okay, believe me, we've dragged our kids to like a dozen different countries. You can still do this. You don't need to like live your life before you have kids. If you've been putting off having kids... I want you, to the glory of God, to start cranking them out. Like right now, go. Get some coffee in the lobby. We have to keep up with the Muslims. Go. I'm calling for a baby boom in this church. I'm calling Highlands Community Church. Married couples fill up the nursery to the glory of God. Because being pro-life being, is, is far more than merely being anti-abortion, isn't it? It is, in fact, pro-something. It is for something. We are anti-murder, therefore we are pro-creation. And so, procreate married couples of islands. To the glory of God, fill up the nursery. If you're in the medical community, and you're a part of these acts that violate the sanctity of human life, and you've come under conviction for that, would you, would you step forward? Would you tell somebody? And would you join me? Could you guys thank with me Amy for telling her story? Would you praise God for what he's done through her story? Welcome Amy to the platform and celebrate what God has done in her heart and life. This is great. Yes. 
Praise God. So come forward. If you're in the medical community, I want to speak to everybody who's involved in abortion and acts of euthanasia. You can repent. You don't have to do this. You're under deception. You can break free. There is freedom for all who are in Christ. So give your life to Christ today and repent of this sin. If God has convicted you for this, I want you to respond. I want you to respond. I'm going to be here. My bride's going to be up here. Other elders are going to be up here with their brides because I know this is a difficult thing to talk about. It's scary for me to preach on, but is it what the word of God says? Do not murder. So here we are. If the Lord has convicted you for this sin, would you come forward and abide in the grace that the cross offers? Give your life to Jesus today. Repent and be saved. Abortion and euthanasia, these things are just symptoms of sin and the antidote is the gospel. The solution is revival. So Jesus, bring it today, beginning right now in this room. God, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son, that if I would believe in him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Elders and their brides are going to be here and in the lobby. Would you stand and worship with us? Some of us for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus.